Turn to Zechariah, if you would, the minor prophet Zechariah. We are coming to the end, near the end of our summer series where we are doing one overview sermon for each one of the minor prophets. And after we get done with this, we'll jump back into going verse by verse through the life of Jesus. But we decided to take the summer, and we're calling it a summer in the minors, where we're doing overview sermons over each one of the minor prophets. And this is the second to last minor prophet. Now, I'll remind you, the minor prophets are not minor because of a lack of importance. They are minor because of the size of the books. But they are absolutely major when it comes to their content. And so we are finishing the minor prophets. And as you turn to Zechariah, I want to give you a little bit of information about Zechariah. You can turn just to very, the very first verse there, chapter 1, verse 1, because that's where we'll start. Zechariah is one of the post-exilic prophets, meaning that he preached alongside Haggai um, exactly at the same time as Haggai. But also Malachi was considered a post-exilic prophet. Malachi would come about 100 years later. But these are prophets that, that preached to the people of Israel after the exile, after the, God's people uh, the, from Judah had been exiled into Babylon, which eventually became Persia. And then they were brought back 70, about 70 years later. If you want to know more of the historical context, you can even refer back to last week's sermon on Haggai. But the people have returned to the land. Cyrus sent them back to the land to build the temple, specifically to build the temple. They came back. Uh, you can read about that in the book of Ezra. The leaders of the people were a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, who was the governor who came from the line of David. Last week in Haggai, we read about him. And the other leader over the people at that time was a guy named Joshua, or as it says in Ezra, Yeshua, who was the high priest in, in, in Judah at that time. And so they were the leaders, and they came back to help build the temple, but uh, the building process got stalled. There was local opposition from the Samaritans. They even forced some of the, the new king in Persia to, to demand the, the ceasing of the building of the, of the temple. But it really wasn't about that. It was that the people feared man more than they feared God. And therefore, they stopped doing what God had told them to do. And so 16 years later, God sends two prophets. He sends Haggai and Zechariah to get the people back on task. And you read about that in Ezra chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2. Let me read that for you real quick. Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So God sends these prophets back to get the people back on task. And sure enough, they were able to rebuild the temple fairly quickly after that. Now, though Haggai, that we read last week, and Zechariah are contemporaries, they are very, very different. The prophecies are very, very different. Zechariah is much longer. Matter of fact, this is the longest of all the minor prophets thus far. If you just sat down and you were to read it, it would take about 40 minutes to read it out loud. So that gives you a hint. We're not going to be able to read every word of it like we have some of the other minor prophets this morning. Uh, Zechariah is, is more of an apocalyptic genre of prophecy in the vein of Daniel, Ezekiel, or in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Uh, and Zechariah consists of some strange symbols and visions. I don't know how many of you got a chance to read through it this week. If you did, then you probably were reading through it going... Okay, as you get to certain sections, because there's these strange symbols and visions that Zechariah has. Now, also, Zechariah is a very, very complex, uh, has a very, very complex and detailed structure to it. Which I'm going to discuss some of that in a bit. The structure of Zechariah. Um, but all this leads to the fact that Zechariah is a notoriously difficult book to preach from. Not only that, it's difficult to preach the whole thing in one sermon. So here we go this morning. Uh, I told you that, that um, Nahum, Haggai, and Zechariah were the least preached books of all the Bible. And I think part of the reason Zechariah is so, uh, so rarely preached isn't the content of what's in it. It's, it's how difficult the book is to interpret. But its interpretive challenges and its complexity do not in any way rob it of its importance and its powerful message, which comes out quite clearly. And part of the reason is that this book here of Zechariah speaks about the Messiah more than any other book outside of Isaiah in the whole Old Testament. 
Only Isaiah speaks of the Messiah more than Zechariah does. Therefore, Martin Luther called this book, Zechariah, he called it the quintessence of the prophets. It's no surprise, therefore, that 54 portions of this book of Zechariah are quoted more than 70 times in the New Testament. Only Isaiah is quoted more than Zechariah. Zechariah is quoted 27 times in the Gospels alone, mostly during the Passion Week of Christ. And Revelation alone quotes Zechariah 31 times. So even if it is a hard book, it's also a very rich and helpful book that points us to Jesus. If one is willing to do the hard work of mining this book, I think he or she will find many, many God-glorifying gems. So let's start mining this morning. So please stand, if you would, to Zechariah. We're going to read, turn to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to do something different. We're going to jump to the end of the book and read chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 6. Uh, and we'll read through verse 9. So be ready to jump to the end of the book when we get to the end of this first section that we read. So this is Zechariah. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, this is the word of the Lord. This carries as much authority as if God in the flesh were right here speaking to you. The word of the Lord says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us, for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Now I want to jump to chapter 14. We'll begin in verse 6. Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem... Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in the winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will, will be one and his name one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this albeit challenging book, Lord, we know that your spirit can and will Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see your truth. But God, give us, give us humble hearts to receive your word. We don't want to be like the fathers of the Israelites who would not hear, who would not see. So if there be any diamond hard heart in this room, I pray, Lord, that you would break it. So open our eyes to hear, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit is what you declare. So God, help us to worship in spirit and truth as we listen to the sermon this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated now. All right, kids, what's one of your favorite games to play? I'm talking about games you play when you were real little. Um, like we have lots of board games in our home and, and different ones, and there's, there's board games for older kids, and there's board games for, for littler kids. So what's one of your favorites? Candyland. Yes, Candyland's good. Another one. Life. All right. Life. The cereal's good too. What else? Okay. Guess who? Hey, you know what? You said the right game this morning because I have your guess who board right here. Okay? All right. We didn't plan that. All right. Good job. Now, have you ever played guess who? If you know how to play guess who, let's see if I can get these out right. When you play Guess Who, the other person has a, uh, a face of one of the people that's on your board here. And we're, we're missing one because, well, one of the younger children in the home ate it. Anyway, um, you got this board here with all these faces. And, and then the other person has one of the people that, that are represented here. And they have the card and you can't see what it is. And so you're trying to guess. And you're, you're, you're throwing out 
clues, basically. Does he have red hair? And they say, no, then you put out all the ones with red hair. Is it, is it a male or female? And you, according to what they say, you knock them down and you keep searching for clues until you identify who it is that's remaining and who it is that they have. I thought about this game. It just popped into my mind this morning as we think about this book of, of Zechariah. Because in this book, really the main aim of the book is to help us see a coming priest king who we know is Jesus. And in this book, there's all these clues. So I can imagine the people asking, well, who is this king? Who is this king of glory? And as Zechariah is giving them clue after clue after clue, and when Jesus came on the scene, and if people knew the book of Zechariah, they should have been able to see, aha, there, there is the king of glory. And so this morning as we go through this book, that's the chief aim of the book. It's to help us see who Jesus is. It's an absolutely astounding book. I've already mentioned to you that it's a bit difficult, so I want to discuss the structure with you this morning. Um, and I'm going to try to do this the best I can. I'm going to try to give you the structure of the book. I was going to make a chart and put it up there, but the chart ended up being way too complicated. See, this is my chart right here, okay? This is my chart as I charted out the structure of the book, and I'm going to look at it as I try to explain to you what the structure is. And because of the difficulty of this book, it can kind of get uh, a little seminary classish, and I don't want it to be like that, but just bear with me for a little bit. But basically this book has two big parts to it. It'd be like an ancient writing tablet which has a hinge in the middle. Okay, And there's one part of the book, and there's another part of the book. The first part of the book is chapter 1 through chapter 6, um, verse 8. Chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 8. That's the first half of the book. And in that half of the book, there's an introductory section, which is what we read. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. That's the introduction of that half of the book. And then after that, there are seven visions. Now, some people count eight. I believe there's only seven, because I think people are counting one too many in one particular portion of the book. There's seven visions. And those seven visions form a chiastic structure, I mean, they, or a chiasm. In other words, they kind of have this shape to them. And we discussed this a few weeks ago with one of the books that we, we read. And so there's seven visions, and basically what that means is there's vision one, two, three, four, and then five, six, seven. And vision one corresponds to vision seven, and vision two corresponds to vision six, and vision three corresponds to vision four, and then there's vision, I mean vision five, and then there's vision number four right in the middle. And that structure is there, it's a literary device to point us to that middle vision. It's to point us to that. So that's the main focus of those seven visions is vision number four. So that's the first half of the book. Now the second half of the book begins in chapter 7. And it goes all the way to the very end of the book, chapter 14, verse 21. This is the second panel of the book, if you will. Now, let me just say for those of you who want to go study this some more, there are some differences of opinions on some of the details of the structure. I was most helped by Meredith Klein. Her work that she did on this book was absolutely astounding. So, if you go to that second half, the second panel, you'll discover the same thing. There is an opening section which is introductory, which is chapter 7 and 8. So chapter 7 and 8 are the introduction of the second panel. And the second panel, instead of having seven visions, it has two burdens or two oracles. Okay, And that's what we have in that second section. So there's, a, there's oracle number 1 and oracle number 2. And it also has a little passage in between the two of them, chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, that serves sort of as the hinge of that whole section. And it's what everything's pointing to. And it deals with the Messiah. And so does that middle vision that we, that we read of in the first seven of visions. That, that one also deals with the Messiah. So that's the structure. There's two panels. But, but you'll notice if you pay close attention, I left a piece of the book out. And the piece I left out was chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And that sort of forms the hinge. It doesn't fit in either panel. And it forms the hinge of the whole book. So if the book has two panels, panel 1, panel 2, there's a hinge. And that hinge is chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, which is all about this coming priest king. So the book, if you look at the structure of the book, both this panel, the hinge of the book, and the panel on the right are all pointing to this coming king. Now I know that sounds a little bit complicated, but I wanted to make sure I had the structure down this week and spend a lot of time on that because I don't want to just do a running commentary for you on the book of Zechariah. I want to know how it's structured and what are the main points that are coming out 
as a result of the structure. So today we are going to be bouncing around a little bit, especially as I discuss the visions. But I want you to know why, because I'm trying to follow the structure. First, I want us to look at the introductory material for each half of the book. And that's how we will see that God promises. I'm going to give you all three points. That's how we will see the first point, that God promises to bring a glorious restoration to his repentant people. We'll look at those opening sections, and we'll see that God promises to bring a restoration to his repentant people. And then we're going to see what that restoration looks like as we journey through the seven visions. And those seven visions will lead us, as I've already mentioned, to that hinge, which is that fourth vision. And when we get to that fourth vision, we will see this, that God promises to give a righteous ruler to his restored people. So God promises to give, bring a glorious restoration to his repentant people. And he promises to give a righteous ruler to his restored people. And then that will drive us to the body of the second section of the book where we examine who this king really is. And we'll come to the conclusion in chapter 14 of this final point, which is God promises to establish his eternal residence with his redeemed people. So those are my three points. And uh, I'm just going to kind of walk through this book based upon that structure. And I think that structure is based upon the structure of the entire book. So, God promises to bring a glorious restoration to his repentant people. That's where we're going to begin this morning. It all begins with repentance. Verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. These two verses right here are basically the history of Israel in a nutshell. For centuries, God had been patiently telling them, return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. But they had failed to to return to him. They had failed to repent, and God brought the covenant curses down upon his people. I'm sure you've seen by now how repentance is a major theme in all the prophetic works that we've read so far. God is always calling on his people to turn, to turn from their sin and their self and to turn back to him. And it's not just a major theme in the prophets, it's a major theme in the whole Bible. The New Testament begins with John the Baptist and Jesus preaching a message of repentance. From the fall of man, God has been calling on men to turn back to himself. And from the moment God began to send prophets to Israel, the prophetic word included a strong call to repent. In Zechariah, both here in this introductory section and in the introductory section to the next portion of the book, chapter 7 and 8, he calls on his people to repent and he draws upon the prophets that went before him and says, remember what the prophets said and he therefore identifies himself with those prophets. Verse 4 says, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So he's saying, remember what the prophets said to, the, to your fathers? But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my, by, but my, words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? God's words, God's statutes were designed to drive his people to repentance, but they would not listen to God. And we see the same pattern, like I said, in that second introductory section as well. But this time God is not only calling his people to repentance, he's calling, to, calling them to ethical reformation as well. Not just religious ritual, but true inward change and reformation. Chapter 7, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So so God is calling on them not only to repent in chapter 1, when we get to the other introductory section, he's calling on them to have ethical reformation, to change the way they live. And I love to see how those go together. They always go together. For repentance involves turning away from a life of sin and turning to good works. And that's exactly what God is calling on his people to do as we look at the structure of this book. Verse 11 in chapter 7. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. It's like little children. Have you ever talked to a child and, and, or when you were a kid and you get in an argument with another kid and he goes, ah, la, 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 la. All right? And he just plugs his ears. That, that's what the people of God are, are represented as here. 
sticking their fingers in their ears so they just won't hear what God has to say. They made their hearts, verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So God, he was always calling his children to repentance, which naturally results in ethical reformation. But the people had ignored the prophets, they had ignored God's word, and thus the covenant curses, the disaster that came from God fell upon them. So here they are now. They've returned from that disaster. They've come out of the exile. And God, through Zechariah, is reminding them of their hard-heartedness, of the hard-heartedness of their forefathers. And now he's calling on them to return to him, and he would return to them. Chapter 8 is filled with the promises of restoration if God's people would simply repent and reform their ways. God is jealous for Jerusalem, it says. He will save his people who even draw the Gentiles in, according to chapter 8. If, if, chapter 8, verse 16, they will speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For these things I hate, declares the Lord. So God is promising to return to them if they will turn, if they'll return to him by turning from their sin and reforming their ways. This is a call that has gone out to God's people in all ages, in all places, and it's a call that still prophetically goes out today. And the people responded then with repentance and submission to the Lord. We see that in verse 6. If we continue in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. They repented. Friends, repentance always plays a huge part in how God chooses to work with his people. And it is a repentant, contrite, broken people that God lifts up and restores. God brings restoration to repentant people. We see it all throughout scripture. And we see the restoration of the people of God promised in these seven night visions. It says that Zechariah had seven night visions. On the 24th day of the 11th month, uh, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. So that's February 15th, 519, just in case you're wondering. He has these night visions. And apparently it all happened in one night. So in one night, he has these seven visions, or eight if you want to count them that way. He has seven visions. I can only imagine what a night that was. I'm sure he was quite tired the next morning. I'm sure his wife, right? I mean, all night he's just wiggling around and saying, What does that mean, Lord? What does that mean? Sure, the next morning she woke up and said, did you have a good night's sleep last night? Because I sure didn't. All right? You'll never get that. (laughs) I really don't. I really don't. So whatever it was, he had all these dreams in this one night. So let's walk through these seven visions. And we'll see a picture of God restoring his people. We'll see it symbolized in some very strange ways. But I think we'll see a pattern, the pattern I mentioned above. And if we, if we see what that pattern is driving us to, how the first and last visions are related, the second and sixth, the third and fifth, and how that's pointing us to the hinge vision, which is, chapter, which is, verse, um, which is vision number four, which is the center point, I think it'll drive us to understand why this was all written. So first, let's look at vision number one, which is chapter one, verses seven through 17, and vision number seven, which is chapter six, verses one through eight. There are great similarities in these two visions. Both of them mention horsemen, horsemen patrolling the earth. And both of them talk about rest, being at rest. In the first vision, we see that the horsemen have gone out and have reported that all of Israel's enemies are at rest, meaning that they have a sense of security and complacency because God has not yet brought judgment upon them. Jerusalem, however, is not at rest. But God is promising that that's about to change. Chapter 1, verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. There's that rest. That are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. In other words, these nations were used by God to judge his people. But they had sinned. They had gone even farther than their mandate. We read on. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So that's that first vision. And in the seventh vision, again, we see that there's horsemen. But this time, these horsemen are executing judgment upon the nations while Jerusalem is at rest. Chapter 6, verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who walked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven. It's referring to these horsemen. After presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth, the chariot with the black horse goes toward the north country. Now, let me stop right there. The north country is always where Israel's enemies came from. Assyria, Babylon, they always came from the north, which geographically made sense. The Jordans on the right, the Mediterraneans on the left. The only other enemy they had was Egypt, and that's going to be mentioned here in a second as well, to the south. Let me continue. The white one goes after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. They cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So there's this other mention of rest because God has judged the nations. So the bottom line here of these first set of visions is simply this. God promises justice and rest for his restored people. God promises justice and rest for his restored people. Then we have vision 2 and vision 6. Vision 2 is in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Vision 6 in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The similarities here are in regards to these strange visions that depict God executing justice upon the oppressors of Judah and removing sin from the land. So let me read here, chapter 1, verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns... Now, horns were representative, were representative of military power. And so he sees four military powers. Verse 19, And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These, are the four, these are, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So God was going to judge those who had brought harm to his people. God was going to bring justice to his people. Now vision 6 gets even more specific as to what this righteous judge, God, was going to do. Verse 1 of chapter 5. And again I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Now to give you an idea, that's like the size of a billboard. That's a big scroll. Okay, so he sees this flying scroll. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So this is the word of the Lord, his covenant word going out. The one side and the other side is a reference to the tablets. So this is the covenant going forward, and God removing impurity from his own people. We read in verse 5, Then the angel who talked to me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what, what that is that goes out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. Actually, we're, we're in chapter, um, chapter uh, 5 now. This is the basket that goes out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, by the way, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. The vision is simply this. God is going to remove sin from the land. Remove wickedness from the land and take it to Babylon. Remove it from his people. And there's parallels here. There's going to be a house built for wickedness just like there's going to be a house built for the Lord in Jerusalem. Now the final set of visions is vision 3 and vision 5. Vision 3 is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Vision 5 is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. 
And in these we see God using the language of a builder. And twice he speaks of building Jerusalem and residing with his people. Vision 3, chapter 2, verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel talked to me, came, talk, who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The promise was that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, but it wasn't going to need walls because God would be in her midst and God would be her wall. And then later in chapter 2, we read this in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land And will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. What glorious hope this had to give God's people. God was saying he was going to come back. He was going to return to them. He was going to dwell with them. And not only with them. But with people from all nations. Who would be enjoined to him. And then we read vision 5. Which is similar. But it involves a historical person we've already mentioned, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Verse 1 of chapter 4, there's this mention of a lampstand of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it and seven lips on each one of the lamps that are on the top of it. When this represents God's sovereign oversight and the vision of God to see all things. And then there's this vision of two olive trees, which are the source of oil that never runs out, which is representative of God's spirit in their midst. And so we read in verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, called, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For, whatever has dis- what, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So there's this great promise that God was going to restore Jerusalem to this great position of glory and his spirit would be amongst them. He said, don't despise the day of small things. Remember last week we read that the people didn't like, they began to get discouraged when they saw the size of the temple. God says, don't despise that. I've got a great restoration in store. So the bottom line for this second set, this last set of visions is that God promises to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem, and to live amongst his people forever. And this will be accomplished by his spirit. So these three sets of visions now lead us to the centermost vision, which is the hinge of this passage. It's the one that this whole book is about. So let's look at this vision about Joshua, the high priest. Now, before we get to that vision, though, let me say there was a, there was a degree of fulfillment of these prophecies because Jerusalem was rebuilt, the temple was rebuilt. And there was a, somewhat of a restoration of the people of Judah. But the restoration described in these visions went far beyond what the people of Judah ever saw after the exile. I mean, where was the rest that God spoke of? Where is this rest? Where was the justice? Because it doesn't seem like God's enemies were gone. Uh, where was the removal of sin from his people? Where was the presence of God? You see, every time the, the, the tabernacle was built and then the temple was built, what happened? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, but not when this temple was rebuilt. Where's God's presence? He promised to be with us. Where is it? So there must be a greater fulfillment. The people had to be looking to something greater than just the 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 partial fulfillment that they had in history. A greater day was coming. And so too now we're going to focus on God's anointed leader amongst his people. But this leader would be a symbol of a greater leader, a greater ruler yet to come. So now let's move on to our second point of the message today is that God promises to bring a righteous ruler for his restored people. And we're going to look at that by looking at this this, um, last vision, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. 
This is the hinge. This is the focal point of this first section of Zechariah. So God takes us into the courtroom of heaven. Then it says this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who, was, who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Joshua was the high priest, and he was to represent his people before God. And here he stands, filthy, and the accuser, Satan, like a prosecuting attorney, is bringing charges against him. But God, in his mercy and grace, rebukes Satan and removes the filthy, sinful garments, replacing them with clean garments of righteousness, pure vestments. This means that God is removing the sin from his people. But it means much more, for this Joshua is a priest, but he's also here crowned. And there's a coronation that takes place, like he's some sort of king. Look at verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This has clear overtones of royalty. So Joshua is to be seen here as some sort of priest king. But God's mercy upon him seems to be conditional. Look at verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge in my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Joshua, the priest king, who here was declared clean, he was also charged to walk in the ways of the Lord without blemish. Oh my goodness, from the height of glory to the depths of despair, that's what this text takes you to. Because who could keep such a charge? Who can walk in the ways of the Lord? But you see, the symbolism of this vision wasn't about this Joshua. No, this Joshua was pointing to a greater Joshua, Yeshua. You do understand that the name Jesus is the name Joshua, right? This Joshua was pointing to a better Yeshua. Chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that. It says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. They are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This Joshua was to be a sign of another priest king yet to come. He is called the servant, a title given only to the Messiah. We read of that in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. And he's called the branch, a title given to the Messiah in Isaiah 4, in Jeremiah 23, in Jeremiah 33, even in Isaiah 53 that we read earlier today. Just as the prophets before had promised, a Messiah would come, a suffering servant, a righteous branch. And this Joshua was pointing to a greater Joshua. Just as the greater deliverance and a greater restoration for the God's people was yet to come, so too a greater priest king was yet to come. This Jesus, this Joshua, yet to come, would also stand in God's courtroom as a representative for his people. But his garments were not soiled, for he was able to walk fully in the ways of the Lord. He would offer up himself and become sin on behalf of his people. He would take their soiled garments on himself and receive the just wrath of God against those sins. And in exchange, he would give his pure, clean vestments to his people. So that now God looks upon them, his people, and sees the righteousness of his son, the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Friends, of course, this happened on the cross. The cross that Jesus, Yeshua, would take, where he would take the sins of his people upon himself, bear the wrath of God, and die to deal once for all with those sins. And this is what this is pointing to. Verse 9, back, we're now back in um, Zechariah, verse 9 here of this chapter. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. This is referring to the inscribed stone that the high priest would wear that says, Holy to the Lord, in Exodus 28. So this Joshua was a priest bearing sin, and he bore it once for all. And it says, And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Did you read that? 
and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What a day is the day spoken of in Hebrews 7.23. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, for, first for his own sins and then the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Oh, do you see the greater Joshua in this story? Do you see the greater fulfillment in this story? I hope so. For now we come to the hinge in the middle of the whole book. Okay, and I think this is fleshing out in reality the vision that Zechariah had seen. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Let's just read it. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, and have them who have arrived from Babylon, and go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from the silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the sons of Zephaniah. And to those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So again, this Joshua in history was placed on a throne in the temple with a crown. But it points to a greater Joshua. This Joshua is a priest being crowned as a king. And this Joshua is charged to diligently obey the voice of the Lord. But all men have sinned. The priesthood would indeed become the rulers of Israel. From this point forward, Zerubbabel, as far as we know, never became king. Never had any, any heirs who became king. And those who began to rule the house of Israel from this point forward were the priests. They were ruling when Jesus came. But they were not walking in the ways of the Lord. We know that. These priests didn't walk in the ways of Yahweh. They didn't obey his voice. Pretty quickly they strayed to the point of wickedness that is on display in the New Testament. That's because all men sinned. No men could do these things perfectly. That is, until another Yeshua arrived. Yeshua of Nazareth. The priest king that would come and who would be like unlike any man who came before him. He would be the Messiah. He would be the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. The branch shooting forth from the human line of Jesse, but whose origins were from old, the ancient of days. This is the one who they were supposed to be looking for. This is what the guess who was all about. It wasn't about this Joshua in history, but a greater Joshua who transcends history. This is who they're supposed to be looking at. And it answers the question, who is this king of glory? So, thinking along these lines, who is this king? I want to finish the sermon today by just a quick walk through the second panel. We don't have time, obviously, to spend on the whole second panel. But I want to bring out some highlights for you. This king who they were supposed to be looking for, and unfortunately, so many of them missed Who is this king? This king is the one who comes to rescue his people that we read of in chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Who is this king of glory? He is Jesus, lowly and humble, welcomed by the multitudes on Palm Sunday. He is the one that we read of in chapter 10, who, unlike the false shepherds of Israel, would be a good shepherd who would gather his people in from all nations. Look at verse 8, chapter 10. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in the far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. Who is this king of glory? He is Jesus, the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd is what John chapter 10 tells us. This king is the one who will be rejected and betrayed by his people that we read of in chapter 11. Chapter 11 verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, 
Give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Who is this king of glory? He is Jesus, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, who in Matthew 27, who by Judas, who in Matthew 27, upon realizing his great sin, threw those silver coins back at the temple, back at the feet of Israel's bad shepherds, and then went out and hung himself. And the money was used to buy the potter's field, a place of burial for strangers. This king is the one that we read of in chapter 12, who himself will bring salvation to God's people by allowing his people to pierce him. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Who is this king of glory? He is Jesus who died upon a Roman cross as we read of in the eyewitness account of John. It says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place in the scripture, so the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones are broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John chapter 19, verse 33 and following. This king is the one we read of in chapter 13, who has become the source of cleansing from sin for all who would come to him. Chapter 13, verse 1. And on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Uncleanness. A fountain was open. And so we read in verse 9 of chapter 13. They who call upon my name... They will call upon my name and I will answer them. They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Who is this king of glory? He is Jesus who is pierced for my transgressions. Whose blood was poured out like a fountain. A fountain under which when plunged, sinners lose their guilty stains. The king is the one we read of in chapter 14. Who despite being crushed, reigns still. For death could not conquer him. He reigns and on that day that God has appointed he will return. Verse 6 of chapter 14. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost and there shall be a unique, unique day which is known to the Lord neither day or night but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue as in summer as in winter and the Lord will be king over all the earth, on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. Who is this king of glory? He is Jesus, resurrected, reigning, and soon to return. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They shall see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They, need no, they, they will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5. He is the one who chose, this king of glory is the one who chose to close the scriptures, the whole Bible with these words. Surely I am coming soon, to which we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, for we do believe that God has promised to establish his eternal residence with his redeemed people. I entitled this message, The Gospel According to Zechariah. Why? Well, look at how it begins. Repent! Look at how it ends. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads.
Friends, I beg you this morning, don't misunderstand this message. Don't misunderstand this message. The call to turn away from your sin and turn to God, the call to ethical reform by itself is damning. That's why Zechariah points to a great high priest, a priest king, who would give us his righteousness. And when we receive his righteousness, guess what? You want to repent. And you want to live for him. Heavenly Father, as we close now, I pray, Lord, that you are honored by this sermon, Lord. I feel overwhelmed, to be honest with you, with such a book like this and feel like a fool like myself could only do disservice to it. So, God, I pray that as people go home, they wouldn't just hear my word, but that they would take their own Bibles and open them up and plunge themselves into the depths of, Zech- of Zechariah and read about the King of glory and exult in the name of Jesus and celebrate all these wonderful details from this book that were fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, if there be any in here who've never embraced the gospel message, they still have diamond-hard hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'd soften those hearts because we can't even repent apart from your Spirit softening our heart and making it a heart ready. So, God, I pray that your Spirit would move in here. It's not by power, not by loud words spoken by me, not by might, but by your Spirit. So spirit move amongst us. And we look forward to that day that we will be in the new Jerusalem. We look forward to that day when you will gather in your children from all nations. As this book so clearly speaks about. And we will be there and your presence will be with your people. No longer will there be any tears. No longer will there be any pain. The people of Jerusalem. Oh yes, the people in history. They, they had some fulfillment. But God, your purposes was to help them see a much greater day yet to come. And in that process, you were going to fold Gentiles into your people. And God, I praise you for that because this Gentile here is lost without a Savior. So thank you, Lord, that you united me to your son, Jesus. And because I'm united to your son, Jesus, by faith, I turned from my sins. And I desire to live for you, but every day I struggle Battling, battling, battling this sinful flesh of mine. Knowing that you're creating in me each and every day. Working in me each and every day to make me more like your son. And I pray that be the case for everybody here. But there be any here who do not know you. Who have never bowed their knee and confessed that Jesus is indeed Lord and King. Then all they're doing is putting on empty religious ritual that will count for nothing on that day. And Jesus, Lord, I'm afraid you will say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. So God, turn our hearts toward you. For the believers in this room, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would cause us to see the King of glory more clearly. And Lord, that we would rejoice in him more more rightly. And God, for those in here who are not believers, I pray that you would, for the very first time, turn their hearts toward you because they can't do it themselves. So we ask all this in the precious name of our King, King of kings, the king of glory, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the righteous branch, the suffering servant. It's in his name we pray. Amen.